You can take your Bibles and turn along with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Over the next few weeks, we're going to walk through together the Lord's Prayer. Working through it line by line, seeking to learn from the Lord Jesus himself how we should pray. We have in the Lord's Prayer a master class on prayer. You've heard about these master classes? Where you can take an online course taught by those who are among the best in their field. Steph Curry will teach you how to shoot. Gordon Ramsay will teach you how to cook. Natalie Portman will teach you acting skills. Martin Scorsese will teach you the art of filmmaking. And Steve Martin will deliver a master class on comedy. Well, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is giving us a master class in prayer. Jesus is putting on a clinic, a prayer clinic. Jesus says here in Matthew 6, pray then in this way. Here's how you should pray. And then proceeds, us, proceeds to tell us how. Prayer is the Christian's greatest privilege. To speak to the God of the universe and to know that we'll be heard. And not just heard, but that we are welcomed. We are encouraged to come to share our needs and concerns. And the promises of Scripture is that we'll not only be heard, but the Lord will answer in accord with His will. But... As in all things, there are right ways and wrong ways to pray. And Jesus shows us here the right way. Jesus shows us here how to make our prayers more effective and most honoring to God. So, beginning this morning, let's enroll together then in Jesus' master class on prayer. Matthew chapter 6, I'll begin reading in verse 9 and read through verse 13. Jesus says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank you 
for welcoming us into your throne room through prayer. And not just welcoming us, but welcoming us with the most intimate of love and care that you have for us. Welcoming us as a father welcomes his children. Thank you, Father, for your love and mercy and kindness and gentleness toward us. Though we deserved wrath and justice because of our sin. But you have provided all that we needed to be reconciled to you through your Son, Jesus Christ, and his perfect sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. And because of your Son's sacrifice for us, we are no longer orphans, we are no longer enemies of yours but we are cherished sons and daughters, welcomed into your presence, invited to call on you, not just as the God of the universe and the sovereign king over all, but as Father. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is probably more aptly called the Disciples' Prayer. For the Lord used it as a teaching tool, a model prayer for how the disciples should craft their own prayers. We have much the same prayer recorded for us In Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, let me read it for you. There on another occasion, another circumstance, different from the one we have in Matthew, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples And so Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Jesus then goes on to include much the same prayer that we find here in Matthew chapter 6. So on this occasion in Luke 11, Jesus shared this prayer with his disciples in response to the request, Lord, teach us to pray. Show us how to do it. And so this model prayer, as it's recorded for us in Matthew, comes to us in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which encompasses Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 6 comes right in the middle there. Jesus, in this sermon, has a section on prayer. And he begins this section of his sermon on prayer by telling them what not to do in prayer. That's always helpful. It's a helpful teaching device to tell people what not to do before you tell them what to do. And that's what Jesus does here. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5. Look there with me. 
When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So that's the immediate context. This is how not to pray. This is what not to do in prayer. Don't pray hypocritically, wanting to be heard and thought well of and esteemed by others. Instead, get away alone. Pray in secret. Let this be between you you and God. And of course, this is also what Jesus modeled in his own life, as he would often steal away alone in prayer. Of course, that doesn't mean that there isn't a place for public prayer. Of course, there is. Jesus prayed in public as well as in private. But what is important here and what Jesus is getting at is our motive in prayer. Are we praying in order to impress others, to have others think well of us, to think highly of us? Or are we praying in order to meet with God, to converse with Him? Next, Jesus says, don't be like the Gentiles when they pray. Gentiles, of course, non-Jews. Gentiles use meaningless repetition. It was and still is common in pagan religions to recite the same memorized prayers over and over again in some kind of mantra-like fashion. The thought being, if I say it enough times, surely my prayer will get through to the gods. But Jesus says don't do that kind of thing because God actually knows what you need before you pray it. Before you even ask him, he knows what you need. So you don't need to repeat yourself over and over and over and over and over again in some kind of mindless fashion. Whatever prayer is, it is not informing God of anything. Uh, God, I don't know if you realize, but uh, I'm in kind of a pinch here. We never inform God of anything. God is the omniscient one who sees all and knows all. He knows the end from the beginning. So we can never inform God of anything. Whatever prayer is, it's also not twisting God's arm. Bending His will to ours. Far from it. Prayer is bending our will to His. Now, it's clear from this that Jesus never meant what we call the Lord's Prayer to be some kind of rote prayer that is repeated over and over again thoughtlessly. Like some kind of a chant. A mindless, mechanical, monotonous 
prayer. Those kinds of prayers do not make for effective prayers. So from the context, it's clear that Jesus does not intend for this prayer to be slavishly repeated word for word as though it were some kind of magical incantation. No. That is not what the Lord intends for us in teaching us this prayer. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't value in us praying this prayer or reciting it together as we've already done this morning. Christians have done so for millennia. But whenever we do read it or pray it, we should do it thoughtfully, intentionally, engagingly, and not with mindless repetition. When Jesus says, pray in this way, he is saying, pray according to this pattern. Pray according to this general outline. Pray along these lines. Pray something like this. Pray in a way that is similar to what I'm about to show you. What this prayer does for us then is it serves for us as a pattern for prayer. It is a model prayer. An outline, if you will, that can serve as a kind of guide to our praying. It models the attitude of our prayer. It models the right focus of our praying. And it models the correct content of our prayer. This model prayer of Jesus can be broken up into two main parts with three requests each. There are a total of six requests in this prayer. Those six requests can be divided up into two sets. The first three requests are all about God's glory. And the last three requests are about our good. In this way, the Lord's Prayer follows the general pattern of both the Ten Commandments and the great commandment of Jesus to love God and love others. They all begin with God and then move on to us. And that's always the right order, isn't it? God takes priority of place. And so it is in the model prayer that Jesus is teaching us here. So we're to begin our prayer with God and His glory before we ever move on to our needs and concerns. This morning we're only going to look at the opening sentence of this model prayer. And we'll be looking at the rest of the prayer in coming weeks. In teaching us how to begin our prayers, Jesus reveals to us here three transformational truths regarding the nature of our relationship with God. That'll be on the screen. There it is. Jesus is revealing for us here three transformational truths regarding the nature of our relationship with God. All right, the first transformational truth comes with the opening words, our Father. And that signals that our relationship with God is an intimate relationship. It's a relationship of intimacy. Jesus begins by instructing us as Christians to directly address God as our Father. Now already this prayer is radically different than what Jesus' hearers might have expected. 
Jesus begins addressing God, the God of the universe, not in terms of his holiness or his high kingship or his incomparable existence. No, Jesus instructs us to begin our prayer by teaching us as Christians to address God as our Father. There's perhaps no more intimate form of address that could be used. And it was a radical departure from tradition. The German New Testament scholar and theologian Joachim Jeremias searched the Old Testament and the rabbinic writings and he could not find a single example of a Jewish rabbi or writer ever addressing God in prayer as Father until the 10th century A.D. It just wasn't done in Judaism. When praying as a Jew, it was thought that one may address God in many ways, but never as Father. When addressing God, you might use many of His grand titles as Lord or Master or Sovereign God or God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But to use the mode of direct address and call on God as Father would have been considered brash and even an act of blasphemy. And yet Jesus here teaches us to call on God as our Father. Jeremiah also studied the prayers of Jesus extensively, and he found that in every prayer of Jesus except one, Jesus himself always addressed God as Father. Of course, Jesus' departure from tradition caused great controversy. In fact, they wanted to kill Jesus because he regularly referred to God as Father. John 5.18 Jesus teaches us here to pray. And the first thing he teaches us is to call on God in prayer as our Father. Now all fathers are not created equal. By God's grace, most human earthly fathers are loving and kind and fiercely protective of their children. But because of sin and selfishness, some are unkind and even abusive of their children and neglectful. And no matter how kind and loving a human father may be, all earthly fathers are imperfect fathers. In calling on God as our Father, we must understand that God is the only perfect Father. God personifies all that the term Father is ideally intended to convey. You see, our human earthly fathers are not to serve as the pattern for how we view God. Rather, human earthly fathers are to take God himself as their pattern of how they love and care for, provide for, and protect their children. God is the ideal and perfect father after which every earthly father is to pattern their own fatherhood. 
So the Christian doesn't come before God in prayer, knees knocking, trembling, as a cowering slave before a cruel master, but rather as a beloved child petitioning a loving father who delights to hear the voice of his son or daughter. That's the reality. That's what we bring into prayer. That's how our prayer begins. Our Father. We've already got it made and we've only uttered two words. We are sons and daughters. God is our Father spiritually. Paul expands on this idea of spiritual sonship in Romans 8.15. He says that as Christians, we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. We don't come before God as slaves before a cruel master. But you've received a spirit of adoption, not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption, a spirit of full acceptance into the family with all the blessings, rights, and privileges that go along with that. You've received a spirit of adoption, Paul says, as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul says much of the same thing in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Because you are sons, sons of God, God has sent forth the spirit of His Son into our hearts, Crying, Abba, Father. As Jesus prayed in the garden, Abba, Father. So his spirit has come to take up residence in our hearts so that we now can cry out in the same fashion as the Lord Jesus himself, Abba, Father. As Christians, we've been adopted by God and given all the legal rights as Sons, though we were once orphans and the enemies of God, but through spiritual adoption, we've been made full members of God's family with all those rights and privileges that come with sonship. And so we too can address God as Father or Abba. Abba is that Aramaic term. For Father, according to Mark 14, 36, Abba's the very term that Jesus used in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he cried out, Abba, Father. It's not surprising that this Aramaic term shows up because Jesus spoke Aramaic. Everybody spoke Aramaic in Israel in those days. The term Abba, that Aramaic term, is an informal, intimate form of endearment, term of endearment that speaks of the closeness and love within the child-father relationship. It's not equivalent to our terms daddy or papa. That's kind of sentimentally nice to think about, and in some circles we hear that a lot. But definitely, it's along the same lines in terms of the tenderness and and the dependence that those English, childish 
terms convey, yet without the informality that goes with them. Martin Luther translated Jesus' use of Abba in Mark 14.36 as something akin to, Dearest Father. And that's getting close to it. That's probably close to what Jesus intends for us in calling on us to address God as our Father. Dearest Father. Through faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross... We who were once spiritually alienated and the enemies of God have been spiritually united with Christ and through this spiritual union with Christ we become sons of God and can therefore use the very same form of direct address with God that Jesus used in his own prayers. Our Father. I love what R.C. Sproul wrote about prayer. And our access to the throne of God. Listen to what he says. God did not give prayer to the church for his benefit. The sovereign has condescended to give us an audience. He's invited us into the heavenly palace. He has lifted the scepter and told us to enter. We have access to his very throne. But you see, we do not come before God's throne merely as his subjects. We do not come before his throne merely as subjects of a great king, although that is true. But we are invited and encouraged to come to him as sons and daughters who are welcomed and encouraged to run into the throne room shouting, Father, Father, knowing we will be welcomed knowing we will not be met with a frown and a scowl and harsh words, but with a warm welcome as a father welcoming his children. Jesus, in the parable of the prodigal son, tells that story of the ungrateful child who asks for his inheritance early and brings great shame upon his father by doing so, basically wishing that his father were dead so that he could have his inheritance and enjoy it while he was young. Of course, he goes away into a far country, spends all that money, all that inheritance on loose living, ends up feeding pigs and fighting with the pigs for scraps of food. Finally, he, it dawns on him. He awakens to the reality of his situation and the reality of the goodness and mercy of his father. And he says, I'll go home. Maybe he'll make me a slave in his house. It'll be better than the situation I'm in right now. Of course, he begins that long journey back home. And what are we told? The father is scanning the horizon, waiting for the son to return. And when he gets a glimpse of him, he begins to spout out orders. Hurry. (laughs) Get the robe. Grab the ring. Put shoes on his feet. Clean him up. 
For my son, who I thought was lost, has returned home. That's the picture. That's the greeting. That's the welcome we receive. We don't call him master. We don't call him king, though he is all of that. We're invited to come to him and call on him as father. It's the glorious truth of the gospel. You and I are prodigals. We've brought shame and dishonor upon our father, and yet he welcomes us through his son Jesus Christ to call him father. That's why Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. People aren't always comfortable around me. Partly because I'm weird. Partly because of my personality. Partly because of my position. My kids' friends sometimes are like, ooh, your dad's a pastor. That's kind of weird. It's kind of scary. And my kids are like, it's just my dad. It's just my father. They're not intimidated. They're not scared. Why? Because they know me. And they know my love for them. We can call on God, the God of the universe, the King over all, as Father. What transformative truth there is in this first instruction. Our Father. Secondly, the second transformative truth this morning. Our Father who is in heaven. So not only is it an intimate relationship, but it is a transcendent relationship. A transcendent relationship. Now this truth provides the needed balance. Lest we get too familiar and too lax in our understanding of who God is and in our Relating to him. Yes, he is our father, but he is also our father who is in heaven. Hello. My dad had a great sense of humor. And I could joke with my dad about a lot of things, but there was definitely a line that wasn't to be crossed. And that line was the line of respect. That's the idea here. There's familiarity without flippancy. And so we're reminded here that not only is the one to whom we address our prayers to our Father 
but he is also our Father who is in heaven. So while we're encouraged to come before the throne of grace with all confidence and the intimacy of a child coming before a loving and welcoming father, we must never forget that this father is indeed the king over all the earth. He is our heavenly father. Let me just remind you who our heavenly father is. Psalm 115.3 says, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He is over all and does whatever he pleases. God is above us. He is beyond us. He's able to do whatever he wishes to do. And he is never subject, never subject to our judgment or is he ever accountable to us in any way. He's the God who is in heaven, who does whatever he pleases. And he doesn't answer to us. Isaiah 40, 22. It is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and he spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. God's power and greatness makes us like grasshoppers in his sight. His greatness is proven in his creating of all things out of nothing without difficulty. That he stretches out the heavens like a curtain, like you're pulling the curtains at night. That's as difficult a task for you as creating all things was for God. This should humble us and fill us with awe and respect. And again, cause us to wonder that this God who created all things and and before whom we are but grasshoppers, nevertheless, invites us to call him Father. But he is the Father who is in heaven. 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Solomon prays. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Solomon at the dedication of the temple confessed that not either heaven nor the highest heaven could ever contain God. He is far greater than anything we can possibly conceive of. And thus he is deserving of our all respect and reverence even as we call on him as Father. The fact that we pray to our Father who is in heaven provides the needed counterweight and balance. Even as it provides us with the confidence that he is able to answer our prayers because he is the God who is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. He has all power. Our prayers are then to strike a right balance between God's eminence, His nearness as we are invited to call Him Father, and His transcendence as He is also our Father who's in heaven. A balance between this familial intimacy which we share with Him as Father and the reverence that is rightly due Him as the God over all. 
God is our Father, but we must be ever mindful that our Father is in heaven and not merely in the living room or tinkering in the garage. He's not the man upstairs. Don't go too far in your conception of God's imminence. He is our heavenly Father, our transcendent Father, worthy of our highest respect and reverence. And that brings us to the final transformational truth. And the last part of this opening sentence of this prayer. Hallowed be your name, number three. Hallowed be your name. It is a reverential relationship. A relationship of reverence. Our reverence toward God, not His toward us. It might be reasonable to think that this phrase, hallowed be your name, is just a statement of fact, like your name is holy. And of course that's true about God, is it not? But that's not what's going on here. For this is the first of these six requests, six petitions that are made in this prayer. This is the first one. Jesus is teaching us here not to merely state the fact of God's holiness, which is good to do in prayer. Jesus is actually calling us to pray for God's name to be hallowed. To have a heart that longs to see God given the honor and respect and reverence that His name deserves. In our own lives, in our families, in our church, and in our community. Hallowed be your name. It is to pray that God's name would be treated as holy. That's what hallowed means. To treat something as holy. We're praying... In praying this prayer, we're praying for God's name to be treated in accord with who He actually is. Psalm 111.9 says, Holy and awesome is His name. Holy and awesome. Isaiah 6.3, of course, that vision of Isaiah in the throne room of God and There he sees these angelic beings, one calling out to another, and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What Jesus is saying here is that we're to pray for God to be treated in the way that he deserves. To be treated as holy. To be revered and feared and respected and worshipped. For his greatness and his sinlessness, his holiness, his righteousness. Something that is holy is set apart and distinct. It is treated as special and being different from everything else around it. And what here is to be treated as holy? It is God's name. A name, of course, is an identifier. 
And as an identifier, a name represents all that a person is. It is the totality of their existence. So that you, when you refer to Lance Gentry, you think of all the things associated with Lance Gentry. And so in praying for God's name to be treated as holy, we're praying for God in the totality of existence to be treated as distinct and special from everything else. God is to be treated as distinct and special from everything else because he is distinct and special by nature of the fact that he alone is eternal and he alone is self-existent and self-sufficient. God is special and distinct from everything else because he is the only one who never had a beginning and because he's the only one who is uncreated. These qualities along with his omniscience, his omnipotence, and his perfect holiness and all the other divine perfections make God special and distinct from everything else that is. Therefore, he is to be hallowed as the greatest of all beings and the creator and sustainer of all things. God's name, as it represents his being, is to be hallowed and treated as absolutely sacred. So what does it mean to hallow God's name? Well, it certainly begins with not taking the Lord's name in vain. Not taking God's name in vain. And yet how casually and incessantly people use Jesus' name or the name of God as a curse word. And sadly, sometimes Christians are guilty of this as well. May it never be. But people quickly and thoughtlessly take God's name in vain every day. One could venture to guess millions of times a day around the world. And what's worse, taking God's name in vain or using Jesus' name as a swear word isn't considered the vilest form of cussing even. Right? That's, that's, that's not the mother of all curse words. In our culture, taking God's name in vain or Jesus' name in vain. In fact, that's, that's sort of rudimentary. That's elementary level cursing. That's the first step toward cursing. And then, as the world understands it, you, you graduate from there to bigger and better curse words. But friends, that is the the mother of all curse words. To take God's name in vain? Broadcast TV and radio will edit out many curse words, but they're perfectly fine leaving in curses that use God's name. Using God's name in vain is the worst form of cussing, for it is a violation of the third commandment. What our culture says is the mother of all curse words is enlisted there. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying say that instead of this. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. We have so devalued God's name 
debased him. Using God's name in vain is the worst form of cursing. And the fact that taking God's name in vain is generally considered no big deal shows us just how relevant, needed, and important this first prayer request is. We pray this because we don't revere God's name enough. We don't think highly enough of God. We don't treat him as holy as much as we ought. And this is our priority as Christians. This is our first prayer request. This comes before anything else. Why? Because God comes before anything else. As Christians, our chief concern is to be that God would be revered, respected, and worshipped as he truly deserves. And because this is our chief concern, it is the first request we make in prayer. What comes at the top of our prayer list is what we think matters most. It is what is most important to us. And oftentimes, what's at the top of our prayer request is a a health concern or the health of a loved one or maybe the salvation of someone we know or maybe some financial provision And as good and right as those requests are to make, Jesus is here reprioritizing our prayer list and showing us what truly matters, what's really important, what it is is that we must get right first. Our chief concern should be for the glory of God's name that he be honored in our own life, in the life of our family, in our church, and in our community and around the world. And we know, of course, that God is guaranteed. He has ensured that this prayer request will be answered. For in the end, God's name will be hallowed, even as the name of his Son is hallowed. For at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, prayer isn't so much about us twisting God's arm and shaping His will to ours, but shaping our will to His. And it begins with God's glory. God's honor. Beloved, God welcomes us to address him in prayer in the most intimate of terms. And yet with the highest level of reverence and respect. And with a heart that beats for the honor and glory of God. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thank you that we can call you Father. Thank you that we who were once alienated and far off from you 
have now been drawn close, welcomed into the family, given all the rights and privileges of sonship, and are welcomed and encouraged to refer to you as dearest father. And even as we do so, we're left in awe and wonder, knowing that you are our Father who is in heaven. Because you are such a Father who is in heaven, who is over all the earth, who created all things, sustains all things, you are worthy of honor, respect, and worship. And so we... Make our first request, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name in my heart. Hallowed be your name in my speech. Hallowed be your name in the way that I relate to other people and represent you. Hallowed be your name in my family. Hallowed be your name in this church. Hallowed be your name in this city, in our country, and around the world. We thank you, Father, that you are committed to answering this request. For one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we thank you. We love you. But we know we love you because you first loved us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.